And we're in our second Sunday of Advent. And as I shared with you last week, I really felt impressed to do this. Actually, we did it last year, but without any real explanation and any preparation. Is that um, it was traditional in many of the churches, and it is still is today, for this call this a season of Advent. Advent is a, comes from a Latin word, which means the coming. And what it is is a time of preparation for for, eat for Christmas, which is the time of Jesus' coming to the earth, God's gift to the earth. And the reason I believe this is important is because it creates an anticipation. God understands us. God who made us knows us far better than we know ourselves. And sometimes we think we just can skip over some of the, 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 the preparation things and just get right into it because we know so much. But God knows better than we do. God has designed us so that he can, he can help us anticipate things. Because anticipation helps you to enjoy. And even the way He's made our body, we talked a little bit about this last week, He's made your nose right over your mouth. Have you noticed that? So that what you goes into your mouth, you can smell. In fact, this time of year, it's very common to come into places and smell cookies baking or smell you know, turkey cooking, maybe at Christmas time or at Easter. or well, not Easter. I told you, <laughs> at Thanksgiving, I do know where we are, at Thanksgiving, to begin to smell some of these things. And what it does is that your mouth begins to water because it's helping you anticipate what you're about to do. Well, God do, did that also when he was preparing to come to this earth. The most, the most significant event known to man in the history of man only second to the crucifixion, but that wouldn't have happened if God did not take on flesh. God, and we'll talk about this in two weeks, the enormity of what God did when God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And so it's the anticipation of that. And, and, and what God did back then is He did things to help them prepare and to anticipate and that's what we're looking at, and it's with the idea and hope that as we do this, it will help us anticipate our celebration of Jesus' coming to the earth when we do that on Christmas Eve. So we started in Luke chapter 2, and a little background there again is that um, Jesus has been born, and he's coming at the day, eight years of eight days old. <laughs> Eight days old, his parents are bringing him to the temple to be circumcised. That was ordained when God entered into a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 17. That every male that opens the womb shall be, brought on the, shall be circumcised on the eighth day of their... And that's a mark, a sign of a covenant that God made with his people through Abraham. And then it's been passed on from generations. So Jesus, the Son of God was submitted to the practice of entering into a blood covenant, which is what circumcision was all about. And so there's this time of great anticipation. And if you have the verses up there, if you can put them up there, Luke chapter 2, this is the occasion. His parents had brought him to the, to the, um, to the temple to be circumcised. And, and there's a long history in here, but we get to verse 25. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. We'll look at that a little more today. So this was something he was expecting. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26. 
Why? Because it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. So the Holy Spirit had revealed to this devout man, Simeon, early on that he was going to get to see the consolation of Israel. Consolation means comfort. So he was anticipating, this is what we looked at last week, he was anticipating something was coming, a comforter was coming, a deliverer was coming, and that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, we tend to look at Christ as Jesus' last name. Christ is the Greek word for anointed one, which is the Greek New Testament version of Messiah, which means the anointed one. And we spent time last week looking back over why would they need a deliverer? Why would they be expecting and needing a deliverer? We'll just review that quickly this morning. Go into verse 27. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, For my eyes have seen your salvation or your deliverance. So the whole point here is why would a man, and we'll go, let's go on and read the rest of it, which you prepared before the face of your people and a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people. Keep going. And Joseph and his mothers marveled at the things which were spoken of. Verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for the sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your soul also. That's the crucifixion. And the thoughts of many's hearts will be revealed. Now let's go on. Now there was also Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age. She lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Israel. So the whole point here is why were there two people who devoted all of their time sitting in the temple waiting to see something? waiting to see the deliverer that God had promised. So last week we went back and watched, because we asked the question, if they were anticipating a deliverer, why do you need a deliverer? Why do you need to be delivered from something? And I shared with you my testimony, a little bit of my testimony last year, that I was a good, I was a pretty good person. I was a good lawyer. I I mean, by that I was honest. I didn't cheat people. I didn't cheat on my wife. I essentially didn't lie. I wasn't perfect. So I I looked at you and thought I was pretty good. (laughs) That was supposed to be funny. (laughs) I looked at other people and said, you know, I'm pretty good. It was only when I saw what God's standard was, that it was perfection, that I realized I needed a Savior. I wouldn't come to God for, I wouldn't come to Jesus because I didn't see why I needed Him. Because I was doing pretty well on my own. So it took a revelation of God to show me that I fell woefully short before I realized what I needed. So you have to know you need a deliverer before you'll expect to deliver. And we went back and looked at that. We went back to look at the basic problem of sin in Genesis chapter 3, which we all fall into that because we're all born in that fallen state of rebellion 
against God. And then we traced it through Israel's history very briefly and how Israel, God created Israel, formed Israel out of Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and God entered into a special covenant with them that He did not enter into with anybody else to reveal Himself. God made a living covenant with them and they broke it repeatedly over and over again. And the result was they were eventually, the northern ten tribes were eventually just scattered, dispersed throughout the known world of, of the Middle East and of, of Europe. The southern two tribes, 150 years later, were taken by exile by the, by the Babylonians into exile. At the end of 70 years, those that wanted to go back came back to Jerusalem and to Israel. And that was God's way of sorting out their hearts. Those that still had a heart towards Him went back. Those that didn't just assimilated into the, into the uh, Babylonian culture. And so God then began to speak through a number of prophets, and that's what we're going to look at today, a promise of a deliverer coming. We looked last week and we saw in Genesis 3.15, that's the beginning of the promise, because God said, in fact, if you've got it, you can, if you put it up there, I think it's in my, no, it's not. But basically God says there that, that He gives, once, the, once He comes to, uh, to Adam and Eve when they have fallen, and He comes and asks them to give an account of themselves. He starts with the serpent, Satan, that caused this. And He says, because you've done this, there's going to come a seed of woman, and it's a singular word in Hebrew, a seed of woman who's going to bruise your head. That's a fatal blow. And you're going to bruise your, His feet which is the crucifixion. So the, the, the first promise that God was sending a deliverer happened right after the fall. God was not caught unaware. He was already prepared, already had His plan in motion. And then there are some in, in Deuteronomy where there's a, spirit, there's a verse where it's prophesied that I'm going to raise up a prophet like Moses, like the prophet Moses. So we're going to look today at some of the promises that God gave to Israel that... Sam, Simeon and that Anna and, and most of the others that were devout knew about. Because understand this, at the time Jesus was born, every Jewish male at the age of 12 years, which they considered an adult, had to, in order to be brought into the, the synagogue, had to have memorized the first five books of the Bible. Take a good look at Leviticus sometime and look at what he had to, had to memorize. There's a whole chapter in there on what do you do if you get a scab. And then they had to memorize the book of Isaiah. And why did they have to do that? It was God's way of instilling the word in them so that when the Messiah came, they had the opportunity of recognizing him. Next week we'll look at why they didn't. But today we're going to look at the promises just a few of them, because there's so many of them. We're going to look at just a few of the promises that God made to Israel. Now, so they, the, the Jews, those that would come and were part of a synagogue, they knew this promise was made. They understood that this promise was made. They knew what they were to look for. We'll look again next week at why they missed him when he came, because they were looking, they, they, they picked out what they wanted to see. And we fall into that same trap today. We pick out what we want to hear and we want to see. So God made many promises to Israel that He would send to them a deliverer called a Messiah. These are Messianic promises. 
We're going to look primarily in Isaiah. Isaiah 1 through 35 is a description of, and we went and talked about this last week, of God's grievous and grievous, the issues he had with Israel, how they failed and how they sought idolatry. And there's some powerful verses in there about how, how, how you know, you're, you're, there's one he says, you take the same piece of wood and you, you carve it into a God that you worship and that you call upon to rescue you and out of that same piece of wood you make a coat hanger. <laughs> in other words, you are making your own gods and you're worshiping them, breaking the first and the second commandments. And then so God expresses his grievances against there. And there's warnings to the other nations of idolatry that are trying to influence Israel. And then there's some promises in there that God makes. And then from chapter, we talk about this, 36 through 39, there's a story of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a good ruler, a godly man. There was a revival that was started under his rulership, under his leadership. But at the end of his leadership, his rule, <laughs> he made a terrible mistake. He, out of pride, he invited in representatives from Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon to look at the riches that were of the temple's worship. And they got their idea. There's more wealth here than our king has. And that became the incentive to come in and to overcome the, 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 the Jews in Judea and take them captive. Now, whereas the northern ten tribes outright rejected God as their God, the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin did not do that. So they would worship God with their mouth. But as God's testimony was, their hearts were far from Him. It's kind of like most Christians today. We come to church and we sing songs to God. We may play the latest CDs or listen to the latest podcast music, but our, where are our hearts? Where are our hearts? I even had to weigh that in the decision to get this little puppy. Because I don't want anything in our lives that's going to draw our hearts away from what God's doing in our lives. As, as joyful as she can be and as much fun as she can be, I can't let that draw my heart away from her or away from my wife. So there's some things God told me I can do to keep that in check. Because He honors that if that's what's in our heart. But the Jews at this time, the Jews that Isaiah is writing to, prophesying to, that was their condition. So they, they did the outward things right, but the inward heart was already gone from him. Which is why, oh this is good, which is why when God sent them into exile, he sent them to a country <clears throat> that would allow them to do what they wanted to do. They could either continue to worship God, he let, they let them do that in Babylon, they could continue to worship God, whereas the Assyrians who took the first ten tribes didn't let you do that. So that when the 70 years was up, what, what was really in your heart would show up by where you went and what you did. And God's doing that today. God will sift His people to find out where our hearts are. And so we have an opportunity now to do our own checking of our own heart. That's why David said, test my heart and try me and see if there's any evil in my heart, if my heart has captured by anything other, other than you. 
Our heart is so important. And then, so that's why that section of 30, chapter 36 through 39 is there. And then starting at chapter 40, some of the, of the great messianic promises. And we're going to look at some of these this morning as we go through these. All right, again, these, these are only a few of these. So let's go to Isaiah 7. These are famous Christmas prophecies. Isaiah 7:14. The Lord, therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. So God's preparing them, and this was last night and, and Friday night. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Let's stop there a second. What's God saying here? God's saying is what I'm about to do, the deliverer I'm going to send to you, is going to be a supernatural. He's going to be a human being but he's going to be divine. He's going to be supernatural. And God, when he, God does something with us, God wants to make sure that we don't get the credit and he gets the credit. Is that because God has a pride issue? No, because God understands us. That the road to God is through humility. It's not through your achievements. It's not through how good you are. It's recognizing how good He is and what you're like. In fact, God once time gave me this definition of humility. Because sometimes we think humility is to beat ourselves up. Oh, I can't ever amount to anything. I'm never going to be anything. I'm never going to be able to do anything. That's pride. Because you're basing what you can do on you and not what God can do in you and through you and for you. So when I was struggling with that at a period in time in my life, I asked God, well, then what is humility? God said humility is the sincere recognition of what I'm like and what I do, can do apart from Him. When I realize and discover after 40 years of following Him, a pastor for 26 years, what a mess I am apart from Him. And if I get apart from Him, I don't care how long I've been walking with Him, I'm going south fast. And it makes me know how much I need Him every day. That wonderful, I need you every hour. I'm not going to even try to sing. <laughs> I need you, precious Lord and Savior. He's, the, the, more, the more you know how much you need Him, the more precious He is to you. And so God is saying, see, when God does it, so when, when, God, when God brought a son to Abraham to start this nation, God says, no, 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 no. He picked, this is just like God. He picked people that couldn't do it. They were too old. He was 75 and she was 65. And she'd been barren her whole life. So God took an impossible situation and spoke, I'm going to form a nation out of you. Nations out of you. And so I've chosen two people that don't have it in them to do it. So they're just like you and me. After nothing happened for a while, they decided to help him out. So Sarah, recognizing she was part of the problem, says, you can, you can have my, my servant, Hagar. And that was not an unknown practice at that time. So Abraham came to, Sarah, to Hagar, and here comes a child nine months later. And we've been living with the results ever since. And then at some point they present Ishmael to God and said, you said out of our child we would have... It. And God said, no, 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 no. I, I don't want your help. 
I don't want you to help me out. I need you to face how totally impotent you are to do this yourself. So then I need you to trust me that I'm going to do it through you. And God took him out and looked him look at the stars of the sky. He says, you can't even see a sun and I'm looking at nations like this that are going to come forth you because I'm going to do it through you and you're not going to contribute anything but believe me. That's all I require of you. And Romans 4 says that is the example of what we need to do to receive our salvation. So here and again, God struck a virgin. God says, I'm going to send my son to this earth, but I'm going, to, I'm going to do it. See, if God just showed up, we'll talk about this probably more in the next two weeks, if God just showed up, he could have just shown up, God can do what he wants to do. He could have just appeared at 30 years of age and started his ministry. But God chose to be born, conceived in a woman's womb, as this play brought out so well. Conceived in a woman's womb, but God contributed the male seed. And God wanted it known that this child that's going to come forth from this human teenage girl is going to come from me and from me alone. I took no man's help to do this. And that's a sign to you. That a vir- that's the most powerful that a virgin would conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. The sign that God has come to you as your deliverer is that a virgin is going to conceive. Let's go to Isaiah 9. We're looking at prophecies. God's promise of a deliverer. Isaiah 9. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, verse 7, and of the increase of his government, his rulership, his peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. So here God is speaking through Isaiah and said that this son that's going to become, that's born of a virgin, is going to rule. And is going to reign. And this is kind of a preview of next week. This is part of why the Jews, at the time Jesus was born, missed it. Because they were looking for a physical government to be established. And there will be no end upon the throne of David over his kingdom in order to in order and to establish it, to order it, <laughs> and establishment, establish it with judgment and justice for that time forward, even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Next verse. The zeal of the Lord, that's it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. We'll perform it. So the first prophecy we've looked at is that he would be conceived, God would just supernaturally do this through a woman, a virgin. And now he's promised that this is going to be a deliverer who will establish his own order to things. He will establish order and righteousness and judgment and truth very much needed at that time. Isaiah 11. It's going to get more specific here. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Well, a rod in this 
in, in Hebrew means a branch or a shoot. So this is like a stump. If you get a picture of a stump and suddenly a, 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 a branch or a, root, a, 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 a shoot starts growing up from this, which is new life. It's from the stem or the root of Jesse. Jesse is of the tribe of Judah. And this is significant because the priesthood under the Old Covenant was from... These are the twelve tribes had a significance. The twelve sons of... Basically, the twelve sons of, of Abraham had a significance. And the tribe of Levi, the son of Levi, and the tribe that came from him, they were the priestly tribe in the Old Testament. They, they were the ones that, that, that worshipped at the tabernacle and then at the temple. And what God is saying here is, my son, the deliverer, when he comes, is going to be a new thing. You'll see this in Hebrews, when you go through Hebrews, because Hebrews 8 and 9 talk about this, starting actually in chapter 5. It talks about, I'm going to do a new thing, a new priesthood. This is going to come, not through the Levi, tribe of Levi, but through the tribe of Judah, because Jesse was of the tribe of Judah, and Jesse was David's father. And we just saw prophecy that the Messiah would sit on the throne of David, of the house of Judah, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Next verse. And this, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. God's telling them ahead of time, I'm sending a deliverer. And the deliverance being sent is going to be supernaturally born, and, and my Spirit is going to be upon him. My spirit's going to, and he tells us what it is. It's a spirit of wisdom. It's a spirit of understanding. It's a spirit of counsel and of might. A spirit of knowledge and a spirit of the fear of the Lord. Stop there a second. Very, go back to verse 2. Very often that's used as a, as a good way to describe the role of the Holy Spirit in you. He is God's wisdom. He is God's understanding. He's God's counsel. He's God's might or strength. He's the spirit of knowledge and of the fear or reverence or worship of the Lord. Amen. Next verse. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. Now when you see the fear of the Lord mentioned in the Old Testament, you've got to understand something. That's referring to the awesome reverence of who God is. There's two fears that the Old Testament talks about. And a great example of that, uh, a great example of that is when God in Genesis, in Exodus 19 came down on the mountain. He came down to reveal the fear of the Lord. But the children of Israel ran away afraid. Moses, uh, in the fear of the Lord, went up the mountain. So the right kind of fear, reverence from God, draws you closer to Him. Scared of God causes you to run away. Religion will make you afraid of God and run away from Him and stay out of church and go do your own thing. The right reverence from God draws you closer to His goodness, His holiness, the awesomeness of who God is. And He shall not judge by the sight of His eyes. Aren't you glad about that? Nor decide by the hearing of His ears what we've said. Verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, decide with equity the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with a rod with his mouth. We're talking about a deliverer now that Israel was looking for. So they wanted somebody that could do some striking. And with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Verse 5. 
Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. That's describing his character. Now look at this. This is what he's going to be like. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. This speaks of peace. Natural enemies being in harmony with one another. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. We're not structured that way at all, are we? We send our children off to some to be taken care of in many churches in Sunday school. That, get them out of here because the adults need to do the real service. But in God's kingdom, things are upside down from the world. God says we think that in order to be in the world, to be mature means you become more sophisticated. In the kingdom of God, to be mature means you become more like a child. Not childish, childlike. What is a small child like? They trust. They trust very easily. You have to teach them not to trust you. And a child shall lead them. I can't get off on this. Verse 7. The cow and the bear shall graze, and the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. In other words, the lion's not going to eat the ox. He's going to eat straw. Next verse. The nursing child shall play with a cobra's den. This all speaks of safety, of peace, no animosity, no anger. See, all, all the things that we see, everything in the world that's reflected in these things comes from selfishness. Comes from selfishness. I want what you have. So the lion's going to eat the, bear, eat the, eat the ox because the lion's hungry and I don't care about the ox. I'm hungry so I want to eat you. Each of these things is talking about deliverance from self, which was the root of sin in the garden. So ultimately God's promise here is I am sending one who is going to deliver you from yourself and selfishness and from sin. I never saw that before. This is good. I need to be tired more often. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. See what that's speaking of? It's safe because the viper, remember the viper is? That's the serpent. Nor shall, the, nor shall any, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 10. And they, in, in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, that's David's father, who shall stand as a banner to my people, for then the Gentiles shall seek him. That's the age you and I are in. This is called the age of the Gentiles. When Israel has passed him over, most of them. There are some that have received him. And God's plan, read Romans 9, that opens the door for the Gentiles to come in. And God's plan is that his treating of the Gentile church will create a jealousy for the Jews. They'll say, they have something that was promised to us back in the Old Testament prophets. And his resting place shall be glorious. Keep going. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. Now this is what they were looking for. From Assyria and Egypt and Pathros, these were all enemies that had taken captivity had taken Jews that had been dispersed 
And God's promising that through this deliverer, they're all going to come back. They're all going to come back. So you can begin to see why at the time Jesus was born, there were people looking. Is this the day? Is this possibly the child? See, this is, they knew it was a child. Is this possibly the one? Okay, next verse. And he will set up a banner over the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Boy, these are comforting words to a nation that's been scattered. And the envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, so there won't be... The, 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 you know, the church is going to get along, is what he's going to say here. The, the family of, of Abraham, of, of Israel, of Jacob are going to get along, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines from the west. He's speaking of victory here. Together they shall plunder the people of the east, and they shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab. Those were enemies. And the people of Ammon shall obey them. Verse 15, The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and His mighty wind He shall shake the fist over the river, and strike it the seven streams, and make men cross over dry shod, Verse 16, And there will become a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as was for Israel in the day that he came upon the land of Egypt. See the promise in there? The promise that there's going to come a deliverer. And he's going to deliver you from yourself and from sin and selfishness so that there'll be no fear in the world anymore because you want to fear your enemies, people trying to take something from you. And the sign of that is the lion's going to lay down with the cub and the, and the, and the a child will be able to put her hand in a viper's nest and not be afraid because there will be peace and security. It's an amazing promise. And then this deliverer is going to establish a rule and a reign and deliver you from the hands of your enemy and he's going to bring everybody back that was scattered away. Their hearts and dreams, were, 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 their appetite for all of this was whetted as every time they went over, over these prophecies. Over these prophecies. Isaiah 35. Now this is interesting because this is before the second half of the prophecies. Isaiah 35, verse 3. He'll strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. This is quoted in Hebrews chapter 12. Say to those who are fearful hearted, Be strong and do not fear. Behold, your Lord will come with a vengeance. With the recompense of the Lord, He will come and save you. So what Israel has, through their whole history, has been persecuted. They've been persecuted. Partly, I believe, because they're God's chosen people. And just like with certain football, I won't better not go there. People envy what's been signaled out for something special. But part of why they're persecuted is they, they broke the covenant God had with them. And as we looked at last week, God's not angry at them. God loves them. But when you, they broke the covenant, they stepped out from beneath the covenant protection. And all of this has come down upon them. But God's promise to them is, I'll still redeem you. I'm still going to fulfill my end of the bargain. And so this is what this is all about. We're recompense of God. He will come and He will save you. Next verse. Then the eyes of the blind shall see. And the ears of the deaf shall be opened or unstopped. Begin to sound familiar? 
and the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing, for the water shall birth forth in the wilderness. That's what happened in Israel. When Israel, the nation of Israel, was established, waters came forth in a desert. In the deserts of Israel, some of the most beautiful food is being grown. And the tongue of the dumb shall sing, the water shall birth out from waters, and the streams in the desert. Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist is in prison, it's not going to be put up there. When John the Baptist was in prison, and, and, and he had already said, I must decrease and he must increase. But John's human. He's sitting in prison, not knowing what's going to happen to him. We know what happened to him. Sitting in prison, waiting. All of his disciples have left him, and they're following this one who's the, they think is the Messiah. And John's, uh, it's John's human, and he begins to get questions in his mind. You know, you sit alone for a while and think too much, you'll begin to question things. And so he sends one of the disciples he still had, he said, would you go, just double check, I just want to make sure, I mean, I've done all of this to do what I believe I'm supposed to do, to anticipate this man, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And, and so he sends one of his disciples to Jesus to ask him just to make sure. I just want to make sure, are you really the one? Because if you're the one, I, don't, I did it. But if you're not the one, I did all of this and I was wrong. Now what's amazing there is Jesus' way of comforting John was to quote these verses to him. Because what these verses say, because Jesus said, I've been doing that. I've been opening the eyes of the blind. I've been opening the deaf ears. In other words, I've been doing what this prophecy says the Messiah would do. Notice what he didn't do. He didn't say, now go tell John I'm proud of him. Go tell John I just, you know, he did a great job. I know it's hard. And I'm going to come and visit him in prison. It's going to be okay. And I'm just so proud of him. John... Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said, go tell him, I'm doing what the prophecy says. So what he's saying is, go tell him, you've done what you were supposed to do. Remind him of his purpose. Now the amazing thing is, right after the disciples leave, Jesus turns to the crowd and says, there's no one born in heaven who's greater than John the Baptist. Why did he say that before he sent him back? Why did he say to them, go tell John... I'm proud of him. There's nobody in heaven that's greater than you. But he waited. He just sent him back and said, Tell John, I'm doing what the scripture says. So you did what you were supposed to do. Sometimes we think we need comfort when we just need to be reminded what we're supposed to do. Sometimes we think we just need Jesus to sidle up to us. I know it's hard. I know it's a struggle. And I'm, let me just hold you and take your hand and comfort you. And there are times we need comfort, but He knows the difference. There are times He jerks the slack out of me. And I'll just get this picture of myself in that final day standing in front of Him and he said, so you didn't do that because it was hard. And you didn't do that because you were tired. <laughs> you didn't. Do, did you do what I told you 
to do. So this scripture, this prophecy, Jesus was fulfilling and he used this to encourage John the Baptist. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Now remember we saw that, that Simeon said he was looking for the consolation, that's another word for comfort, of Israel. So here's a promise that God says, this Messiah, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Israel. This is God speaking to Isaiah. Cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Remember, that's who John the Baptist is. So part of the sign that he was the Messiah was there went one before him, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Verse 4. For every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. So he's going to bring equality. And the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. These are the promises of the consolation that Simeon was referring to. And John the Baptist was the sign. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now let's go to Isaiah 61. This really brings it into focus. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is Isaiah prophesying what the Spirit of God gave him to say. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. Let's stop there a second. Has it ever occurred to you how Jesus found out who he was? So I grew up in church, I just think Jesus knew everything. Because he's God's son, so when he came out of the womb, he knew everything. That's not what the Bible says. There are several places where the Bible says the young child grew in wisdom and understanding. If you know everything, you don't grow in it. God, the Father, doesn't grow in wisdom and understanding. And God, the Son, until He was born as a child, didn't grow in wisdom and understanding. But God, who became flesh as a baby, had to grow in wisdom and understanding. And how did he do that? The same way you and I grow in wisdom and understanding. It's by reading and meditating on the scriptures. He saw who he was by reading the scriptures that described who he was. And whereas everybody else read it, said that's nice, when he read it, there was a witness inside of him. That's me. And this must have been a growing awareness. That's me. That's me. When it says the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, that's me. For He's anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of... Let's stop there a second. 
What he's saying here is the one on whom God would send would be anointed by his spirit to do these things. And these are all God's promises of deliverance to Israel from her sin and the consequences of them. Luke, Jesus, when he has been baptized in the Holy Spirit, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, came out of the water, the Holy Spirit, go back to verse 1. The Holy Spirit came upon him. The Spirit of the Lord God came upon him. The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We don't have time to go there this morning. And then and the next thing is he leads him into to his hometown, to Nazareth. And Jesus goes on the day of on the Sabbath, as as a member of that synagogue, he had a right to stand up and read the scriptures. And the book of Isaiah was handed to him, and this is what he reads. Now the scriptures don't tell us this, but he's got to have read this before them before in that synagogue. This is a very famous passage. So he must have read this same verses in that same synagogue before him. But this time when he reads it, they get angry at him. And they know who he is. Because now when he reads that, it doesn't sound the same way. Because now the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And when he reads that, it comes out with a power, not by his volume, but by the authority of the Spirit of God upon him. And they can feel the difference. He's saying he's the Messiah. And the problem they had is they watched this kid grow up. And he was a good boy. He didn't sin. But he may have messed up on somebody's chair one time when he was trying to help his father. They may not have come out quite straight. I remember this little boy, I bought a chair from his father and the chair broke. That's the Messiah? He grew in wisdom and understanding. Because he sent me to preach good tidings to the poor, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captive, opening a prison to those who are bound, verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Let me explain that to you. Very important. In Leviticus 25, we were not going to go there this morning, there's a system of Sabbaths that are established. There was the Sabbath of every seventh day. There was a Sabbath year, which is every seven years. But then there was the Sabbath of Sabbaths, which is called the Jubilee, which was every 49 years. It was seven years of seven, which is 49. And in that 49th year, because in the Sabbath year, they couldn't, they couldn't plant. They had to do that in the sixth year. Just like on the Sabbath day, they couldn't plant and do things. They had to do that on the sixth day. On the, on the, on the 49th year was the year of Jubilee. And I don't have time to get into all of it. On that year, all debts were canceled. Oh. Everyone with a debt says, Amen. Amen. <laughs> All debts were canceled. People were restored. Things were brought back to the way they were. When all that was... It was the year of deliverance. And it was a great festival. A great celebration. And there was a preparation for it. So Jesus was proclaiming here the year of Jubilee. 
The Euro Jubilee is not just something Israel you celebrate every 49 years. I am the Jubilee. I am the restoration of everything that God originally created for you, Israel. I am the restoration and deliverance from all your debt and all this debt of your sin and all the content. I am the answer God's brought to that. That's what that means. And they knew that well. They were looking for the year of Jubilee. Now, there are many other Old Testament prophecies we don't have time to go into this morning. Old Testament prophecies that God would send to deliver. Now, there are many prophecies about what the Messiah would be like and what he would go through. There are many about his crucifixion. There are over 27 specific prophecies about what would happen to him in the last week. The odds of that... All 27 of those coming through in the life of one man in one week, I've read this, is the same as if you took a silver dollar and you went to the state of Texas and the state of Texas and your silver dollar had a red X on it and the state of Texas was covered two feet all over the whole state in silver dollars and somebody from a hillock plane dropped this one silver dollar with the red X on it somewhere in that a mass of two of silver dollars and you went in and in one try you found it and picked it out. The odds of that are the exact same of the odds of 27 of those prophecies given over a period of hundreds of years coming true in the life of one man in one week's time. God's Word can be trusted. God's Word can be trusted. But all we're focusing on now is the promises of the Deliverer coming because we're looking at and just anticipating His coming. So for instance, in Psalm 2, verse 7, we're not going to put these up, it says He would be God's Son. Daniel prophesies the specific time when the Messiah would come. Micah 5, 2 says where He would be born, born in Bethlehem. And again, this is just a sampling. So what's this mean for us? Nice lesson in Isaiah, nice lesson in some of the prophecies, and many of these are familiar Christmas verses to us. And I hope maybe to now, now they're more than just a Christmas verse to you. You see why they were so important. Well, I think there are about three things I want to look at. First of all, it shows you that God's ultimately in control of history. I don't believe God controls everything that happens to us, but God is in control of history. Nothing happens. Nothing happens that, sh- that shocks God and surprises God. I don't have time to get off in the sovereignty of God because some people believe the sovereignty of God. I guess I will. God means this, Some people mean the sovereignty of God means God makes everything happen in your life that happens. That just can't be true. Because why did Jesus pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? That means God did not give us a free will, which means he did not make us in his image. The sovereign, I, I look at it this way. God's sovereign. And as a sovereign act of God's will, as a sovereign act of God's sovereignty, God sovereignly chose to give you the ability to make a choice. So you don't have that choice because you made it up. God gave you that. That's His sovereignty. So if you decide you want to go out this afternoon and, and rob a bank, don't blame God. You chose to rob the bank. Okay? And, and don't tell the judge that. God made me do it. Or the devil made me do it. You did it. 
So God is, but God's ultimately in control of history. God knows what's going to happen, and this is all going to come around. So don't get anxious about the time we're in right now. Don't be afraid. Oh my gosh, things to be seem to be looking worse and worse and worse. That leads to the second thing. God has a plan and made promises to redeem us out of it. To redeem us out of our sin and the consequences of those sin and to redeem us as He's redeeming Israel. And God's, and the third thing is God always fulfills His promises. God always fulfills His promises. So again, as we bring this to a close, what's it mean for us that God promised to send a deliverer? We understand what it meant for Israel. But the Old Testament is the Old Testament. The Old Testament sets the foundation for and the anticipation of what God did in the New Testament. And it's all summed up, really, in three verses. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave as a deliverer His only begotten Son. See, nothing else would do. God didn't send an archangel down. God didn't look out and say, Look, I'd like to save my son. I don't want him to have to go through this. So I'm going to send Gabriel. Or I'm going to send Michael, the warring angel. I'm going to send them, and they can do the job. No, God withheld nothing that was needed. An angel dying for you or me wouldn't do it. You know why? Because angels can't die. You know, one of the reasons God had to become a human being is because God can't die. So He had to become a human being because it's only by the death of a human being that we could be redeemed out of our death. He had the full, I'm getting ahead of myself for next week. He had to fully take our place or it would not have worked. He, because he so loved the world, notice he didn't, notice it's not the church. There was no church. For God so loved the world, that nasty boss you have, unless you work here. Everybody. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the Deliverer. This is the Messiah. He came to deliver us from death. Verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. So why are we doing it? Why are we, the church, His body, why are we doing what He would not do? Amen. Who do we think we are that we would condemn the world because we think we're so good when He didn't come to condemn the world? He did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That's why He sent us. Verse 18. So that he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
What condemns us to be eternal separated from God is not God's condemnation on us. We condemn ourselves because we reject the deliverer that God sent. It's not smoking and drinking that will send you to hell. It will make you smell like you have been there. That's what Pastor Sam used to say. But it doesn't send you to hell. Because then people that don't smoke and drink say, well, I can go to heaven because I don't smoke and drink and I don't mess around with somebody I shouldn't mess around with. No. It's what do you do with Jesus? God so loved us that He sent the very best He had to come to this earth and to pay for your sin and my sin. To redeem us from the mess we got ourselves into of eternal damnation and condemnation. God sent His Son the Deliverer. And if you accept Him and receive Him as the one God sent to pay for your sins, then He takes your sin upon Himself and He gives you His righteousness. But if you do not accept Him and reject Him, you've rejected the only deliverance that God can give you. There is no other salvation or deliverance. There is no other answer God has. So you then choose to condemn yourself to an eternity in hell that God never created for human beings. It was created only for angels that rebelled against Him and therefore fell. Right now, this is the most important part of this service. So the ushers are instructed to not let anybody come in and leave unless it is a dire emergency. You can wait a few minutes. Because what is at stake now is literally the eternal destiny of the souls of some people that may be in this room right now. The message we've heard this morning is of how much God loves you and God loves me that He gave His only begotten Son to save you and to redeem you from the mess your life has been made of by you. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you were a good person. And you think, well, I'm a great person. But here's the problem with that. This is what God had to show me. The standard that God measures, if you're going to stand before God on the judgment day, and there is a judgment day that everyone will face, you will stand before God And if you choose to stand before God based on how well you've lived your life, here's what you need to know. The standard that God has for you is Himself. You may have been better than everybody else in your family and where you work. You may be better than everybody else in this church. You may well be better than me. But God's standard isn't me. God's standard isn't the rest of us. God's standard is Himself. And this is what the Bible says. If you're going to go to heaven on your own, here's the standard. You can't ever have sinned once in thought, word, or deed. And when I saw that, for the first time I realized, I can't measure up that high. I need someone to save me. And when I heard my own words, I realized now I needed Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one that's lived up to that standard and He willingly trades places with you so that when you stand before God, 
if you've received Christ, you stand before God in Christ, in His righteousness, in what He did, and not what you did. That's the best way I can explain it. It's now up to you.